0: One of the things that I like about my own creative life is the fact that I get to learn from some great photographers. And I'm not talking about just learning about how to use a camera or use software. The most valuable things that I learned from other people is how to see and how to better express my own vision in my work. And that's one of the things that spurred me to invite today's guest, Brian Matias, to the candor Frame. Now, in his role as the software education manager at On One Software, he already provides a lot of valuable resources in terms of his webinars and his blog posts with respect to how to use the software. But the reason I invited him on the show was to discuss his own personal journey as a photographer because I found that he was providing some invaluable insights that really resonated with me and hopefully with you as well. Well, Brian, welcome to the Candid Frame. Thanks for having me. I I was uh, I've been interested in interviewing you for a while, but really kind of spurred me to give you a ring after I saw this new series that you've been doing called "Breathing New Life into Old Images." And uh, I watched one of the videos, and it was really fascinating how you sort of discussed how you had changed as a photographer since the initial times you had uh, worked on those images and i thought that was a re- really interesting thing to to look into because i know for myself i don't often do that return to old images in terms of reprocessing them with you know the newfound knowledge that i have mm-hmm. tell us about that process for you and why it became something that you wanted to share with the people who visit the on one site in terms of using the using the
1: software sure oh. um and again, yeah, thanks again for having me on. I, I you know, I think I, I, I'm humbled. So the, the the Breathing New Life series, it came about because, so uh, at On1, in addition to creating a lot of the the training c- c- um, materials and, you know, kind of being the social front of On1, I also provide a lot of the content in terms of what we use for the images, um, the images for the advertisements and stuff like that. So. We were talking in the marketing meeting about needing some images for a particular campaign. And I, I thought, oh, you know, I remember, I remember going someplace a few years ago. Let me check my Lightroom catalogs from that year. And so I went back and I just, you know, the way my Lightroom catalog is structured, I have smart collections for any images that I posted to my blog at the time. So I looked through those and I just kind of, you know, shuddered because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think with us as photographers, um, especially photographers who are in the online, uh, various online mediums, you work on an image and you get the image to a certain state of doneness, like a steak, and you put it out there and then it's out for consumption. And once that's done, it kind of goes into the ether. If it's an especially good image, you know, you might put it into your portfolio, but for the most part, I'd say a larger percentage of the images that we work on as photographers, you work on them, you put them out there, and it kind of gets relegated to the dustbin. That's what prompted me. So I was going back into two, into the two thousand nine, uh, two thousand ten catalog. So it's only three, two three years old, and I I really did cringe. I'm like, wow, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like, why did I get that tattoo? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but not I, as
0: permanent, but
1: not as permanent. Nope. Nope. Not as permanent. Although They do say that everything on the internet is permanent, but thankfully, yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing marred on your skin. So I thought, all right, you know what, let me, uh, uh for one, it was just one image for this campaign. I, I started it from scratch. Uh, I took the original brackets. It was an, a tone mapped, uh, HDR image and I, I tone mapped it using knowledge that I gained uh, over the since then, but also you can't deny the fact that in those two years or so the the, the products that I used evolved. Uh, algorithms for tone mapping became more effective, and then just my own sensibilities became more refined. So what used to be this compulsion to crank things up and make things so edgy and in your face became much more subtle. And so uh, the result was a, a much more pleasing image, even though the file itself was several years old. And that's what prompted the webinar series. I'm like, oh, wait a second. There's something over here. To, there's something to be said about it.
0: What did you think of the photographer that you were two years ago? Because I'm sure that at the time, uh, even without the, the you know the processing that you apply to the images, how did you see yourself? You know, with that gap of time, in terms of just how you were making images as compared to to now. I know that you you obviously had some judgments in terms of how that photographer at the time processed them. But mm-hmm. what did you think
1: about your eye? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a really good question because um, when I thought about it more, and, I, and I, I, I thought about it a lot more, especially since knowing that we were going to have this conversation, I, I kind of wanted to do some introspection about it. I was, I was happy. I wasn't necessarily happy with the actual results that the photographer back then created, but I was happy in the fact that I wasn't happy. So it's kind of really kind of rhetoric. But mm-hmm. the reason why is because it shows evolution. And I'm not saying that I'm a better photographer than I was uh, back then. What I'm saying is that I'm a different photographer. As long as we're constantly auditing ourselves, um, that's a good thing. You know, That just means that if I was putting the same stuff out now that I was then, in terms of that kind of really edgy, in-your-face look, I would be concerned because i feel like I was pigeonholing myself and I wasn't really growing, it was good. It was was a really good thing to see because I don't normally go into those catalogs very often. Usually I'm I'm working within the past month or two of images from shoots. It's not often that I'll go back to 2011, 2010, or, or, you know, I have catalogs that go back to my first digital camera was in 2000 or 99. So, you know, that's kind of I very rarely go that far back. You
0: know, it's an interesting distinction you made in terms of, you know, saying that you're a different photographer rather than a better photographer. What's the difference in your eye?
1: I guess it's a very subjective thing for me to say whether I'm I'm better than I was. I think am I just think that my eye has is different than it used to be. And it goes from the the creative and 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 mental component of being a photographer to also things as superficial as the gear that I use. Back then, I didn't necessarily have the lenses that I have acquired since or um, the knowledge, the working knowledge of how to effectively use them. I still love the subject matter. I still love shooting what I shot back then, but I just do it differently. Things like HDR is used more judiciously than before where I would tone map everything, even if there wasn't a, a large... A range in the scene. I still tone mapped it. So it's this evolution to be a, a more, I think, maybe a more effective photographer. Now that you have this perspective in
0: terms of how you progress as photographer, particularly in a short period of time, what do you attribute most to that growth and that change? I mean, you mentioned the fact that you didn't have certain equipment then that you have access to now, that there have been improvements to software that mm-hmm. you didn't have then. But do you attribute the change to that or do, or do something else?
1: It, w- it wouldn't be fair for me to say that the gear and the software have nothing to do with it because they do. Uh, you know, it's only fair to say that. But – I, I think I just attributed to, it's always, you know, man, Malcolm Gladwell really knocked it out of the park in Outliers with that whole 10,000 hour routine of of achieving mastery. Um, and not to say that anyone really can achieve mastery of photography or, or art, but going back to the amount of time that you invest, I'm a very one track minded person in terms of my, my, the, I, I'm okay with saying that the only thing I'm good at is photography. I'm fine with that. I'm not a handy person, you know, I don't I'm not I don't care for for racing cars or any of that stuff. I just care about photography and the technology surrounding photography. So, spending all this time fully immersed, not just out in the field shooting, which is important, but also becoming more in touch with my contemporaries and my peers and even the fact that with this my role here at on one, it opened up Opportunities for me to meet the people who I greatly respect, just because of the relationships we have. So all this stuff kind of put it into that, that that slow cooker, and I think it attributes to you know just being uh, an evolved photographer.
0: You wrote in your guest blog at Scott Kelby's on Scott Kelby's blog mm-hmm. about the role of, of of feedback of reaction to your images. Yes. And I really appreciated what you brought to the conversation because you were quite frank in, in the fact that sort of early on as you started sharing your work, you know, online and, and, and posting it on your blogs and wherever you were, you were posting them that you became quite addicted to the idea of people liking the images that, right. uh, and responding to it and saying, Oh, this is great and sort of getting those accolades. And that somehow you found that that eventually started stagnating your growth as as a photographer because you became sort of a slave to that rather than really doing things that really challenged you or developed your vision. Can you talk about that? Because I thought uh, that was a big takeaway for me when I read that.
1: Well, thanks. And, and I, it's something that very much is still very, very on the forefront of my mind every single day, every single time I post an image, that kind of concept. Is in my mind because when you're starting out or when you're just kind of um, in that mode of of trying to find where you where you fit in this in this massive industry, um, and I, I don't say, mean industry in terms of business component, but in terms of the social component of digital photography, you want validation, and so you put your stuff out there, and any feedback that you get, it's like okay you know this is the this is the gauge to which whether I'm a good photographer to which whether my images are good and so it it kind of started compounding on itself for me um where if i put an image that i was really happy with i was really happy with it but it didn't get a lot of comments or it didn't get a lot of reception on whatever social media network i put it on at the time that degraded or tarnished the image and it wasn't until i had i don't know what it was I can't remember the specific um, breaking point, but there was definitely a breaking point where I was like, who am I doing this for? You know, why am I, what do I care what anyone really else thinks? Unless you're paying me money, unless you've commissioned me for my services, your opinion um, is great, but it will, it should not have any impact on whether I think the image is good. That conflicted with me inherently because the second you think you don't need feedback, that's where you stop growing as a, as an artist, not just a photographer, as a person. So I thought, okay, we need to refine this creed. And I thought, all right, instead of caring about what this, this you know, whoever is seeing it, I really need to focus on finding people who uh, can be role models, who I, I respect, who are willing to take real time to give me real feedback. And that kind of feedback needs to come from their own experiences, me asking someone who's who's been shooting as, as long as I have for feedback, you know, it's good and everything, but I am I would rather look to someone who really kind of uh, has already uh, cut their teeth on it and, 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 and whose feedback has um, substance. So that's what I did, is I turned to a mentor, and uh, he was, you know, exceptionally uh, constructive, and, uh, you know, we went shooting together, and I'd show stuff, and that kind of that really helped me more than any any social media thing.
0: It feels like you were sort of impelled to do that because you wanted to grow as a photographer. But you start feeling how soft your ego can be when you put yourself out there in that way. I mean, it's <laughs> one thing to put your images on Flickr or 500px or something like that. And, you know, if someone doesn't like the image or says nothing, you know, you don't like it, but you don't necessarily become as impacted than someone that you respect telling you, you know something – this falls short of the mark. Yep. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure that you had some sort of trepidation in terms of doing that sort of initially, but talk about those feelings because I know I I have them myself when I when it comes time for me to show my work. So I I don't think that's exclusive to anyone who's who's creative.
1: No, absolutely not it's a pitfall. And, and, and so this story, I, it's this little anecdote that I, I kind of bring up every time this kind of conversation comes up and it's a hundred percent true and I keep it kind of anonymous, but I think it's very effective in delivering the point here. Essentially, I was talking with a friend of mine who um, puts his stuff out there and he put, I remember he put out an image and, and I liked it. It was a really, it was a, a really good image. And I remember reaching out to him offline and telling him that, that I thought the image was really good. And, and, and for the most part, if I know you personally, I'm more apt to reaching out to you, you know, offline and talking about the image than just leaving a, a kind of a benign comment. Not to say not not taking anything away from it, but I, I find more significance in having that one to one cardinality. So I said, "Hey, great shot!" And I remember his response was, "Yeah, but uh, you know, it, it, it didn't really get a lot of plus ones because uh, it was on Google on the Google Plus." Oh wow. Yeah. And I thought, wow, isn't that a tragic? sentiment to have that you're basing the success or how much you like the image on whether other people like it. And so that's the whole crux of who are you doing this for? If you're doing it for yourself, then that should never even cross your mind or it should be something so nominal that it just doesn't bother you. You, If you don't have confidence in your own work, that's going to show through. With regards to you know yeah we I put out my work there it get it gets sometimes it's a hit sometimes it's a miss I, I monitor the comments mostly because if someone puts a question out there or I want to start a conversation over a point someone makes um, or to provide clarification that's why I monitor it but overall the shots I put out there I put out there because I'm happy with them I'm not going to put out a shot that I'm not happy with yeah if I put out a shot every day it just is. Because I shoot, I shoot a lot, you know, I go out shooting as often as I can. And so you build a stockpile and depending on how um, neat you are with your workflow, you know, I have a, I have images prepped to process. So I don't need to go running around looking for images. And to me, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm sure a lot of photographers can relate. The post-processing is a respite from the shooting. It's, it's actually, it's a, it's a relaxing thing. So, you know, my hobby or my, my, my relaxation is the other hand to the the vocation.
0: And, you know, one of the things, the other things you you wrote that I really liked was the whole idea that if you're not working for somebody, the only person you're shooting for, the only one that's, that's pushing you out the door to work on a project to make a single image is you. Yes. That, you know, waiting for something is, is not the way this works. That so much of it has to be self-initiated and you know as you and i know that can be a challenge sometimes so i'm sure that you're you know in your role at at on one you know it does provide some advantages in terms of you having to produce images for for your work but Mm -hmm. when it's not associated to that most of most of the time you're creating stuff for yourself so talk about what sort of foundation have you created for yourself Mm -hmm. to ensure that that happens so that other things that are not related to photography don't take up become a priority
1: Right. It's a tough one because my situation is definitely, it's an anomaly and it's so much of it is is luck and timing and, and these, these things that are not, that don't have anything to do with skill per se, you know, as so many things in life are, right? You know, it's just a lot of it is timing, luck, right place, right time, who you know. I, I fully believe that um, unless, like you said, if you're not being commissioned to do something, then, then the only way you're going to really grow as a photographer is if you kind of do things for yourself and set benchmarks, go out there and shoot, 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 shoot. I always say, you know, no, you're never done with a scene, a location. You're never done with it. You know, unless it's, it's a uh, four walls and confined and there's, there are no variables to that room, you're never done with it because as long as there are variables, you can keep shooting. And if you can keep shooting and keep growing. So, so let's say my situation where I, I, I was a photographer, I have this opportunity to work for this company who makes software that I i had been using the software for years before I was hired here. I don't know how many people really know that. It's not like I just, oh, on one software, I'll go work for them. The reason why I, I got my role is because of how important the software was to my workflow at the time. And they saw that and they thought this is, could be a good working relationship before that i never had any uh, intention or aspiration to work for on one i just loved the product i i kept working so the whole anomaly thing is people i think people just they they put the cart in front of the horse they don't allow themselves to really enjoy the photography because they're so immersed with what other people are getting you know oh you know i'm selling my prints here or i um you know i'm a i'm Working for um, a photographer, this or that. You know, people are so wrapped up on this whole idea of: Am I a working photographer? Am I a professional photographer? And what's and looking at what other people are doing and caring about what they're doing that they never really appreciate just picking up a camera, taking a photo, and creating an image. Um, and that's the problem. You know, um, people are unhappy with their current jobs, and uh, and I'm not saying this is. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement, but you know. They think that there's this fantastical whirlwind around the, the the globe, taking pictures and being paid for taking pictures. When in reality, being a photographer can be a very, very thankless job. When you when you put it into the marketing and the business side of things, that a lot of people don't ever really consider. You know, before anyone can be successful as a photographer, I really think they need to kind of find their own love of it for themselves and not for other people.
0: And your work has revolved around a lot of HDR work. And, yeah. uh, and it's been really interesting watching the, the videos on, on the site to see, particularly these, these videos where you have revisited older images. Yeah. To see how th- your sensibility has changed. Cause I've only dabbled in HDR. And mm-hmm. like so many people, I, I kind of had gotten accustomed to a certain type of luck, that sort of yes. grunge luck. Yep. And what's really been fascinating is to see, how many different alternatives there are for interpreting an image even with that one given process and it's and it's fascinating to see one photographer given the the luxury of time all of a sudden take a scene and completely reinterpret it in a very yeah. different way tell me why why it is that hdr for you is is such a fascinating outlet in terms of photography
1: what hdr was is a hundred percent different than what HDR is now. Mm-hmm. You know what HDR was back then is exactly what you said. When I first kind of, I remember, I'll never forget it. I'll never ever forget it. This photographer, his name was Ed Bronx on Flickr years ago, like two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. I saw this image and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it because one, it was a, an Urbex image, kind of like a grungy uh, uh, abandonment shot. Mm-hmm. But two, it had this this look to it, this this thing to it that was I couldn't I couldn't believe it, you know. It looked unlike anything I saw. Now, I'm not, you know, that was just, for me, the first HDR image, first tone-mapped image I ever saw. And so that got me fascinated. And so I reached out to him. He told me, oh, yeah, it's HDR. And I'm like, what What are these three letters? And that led me to, you know, people like uh, Ben Wilmore and Trey Radcliffe and uh, David Nightingale. So, like anything, and like most people who first start dabbling in HDR— that's just what you do because it's so compelling when you can put out an image that looks like that. And so that's when you have no sensibilities. I don't mean that in any sort of um, derisive way. When, you, when you're so blinded by all of this punchy color and saturation, you can't help. It's like, my, you know, my God, my image has never looked this, this you know, like this. That went on for a few years, you know, and through that, I was kind of refining and learning how to, you know, HDR, what um, is, is so important about HDR is not so much even the software, but it's the actual brackets, the the, the images that make up the, the tone mapped image. And so where I started just taking three images and trying to tone map evolved into taking, you know, uh, five images into, into seven images and into nine images. Um, so I'd be fe- feeding in nine images or more as the years went by because I started understanding technicality. And that is how my perspective changed with HDR is that it went from a, a style to a utility. Once I understood what HDR actually meant, that high dynamic range isn't just tone mapping, high dynamic range is the ability to kind of through multiple exposures, restore tonal range that your camera can't capture in, or your digital camera can't capture in one exposure. It became a, a utility, a tool to, to create a benchmark, a baseline image. And from the baseline, that's where I start to stylize because you start to see a lot of people do the stylization, the getting the look, as you said, in tone mapping. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a staunch advocate that that is not the proper use for HDR. HDR is simply, if anything, your HDR, your tone map image should be flat. It should look boring, dull, but you should see the highlights and the shadows and then your creativity that creativity side kicks in with stylization because you're not you don't have the pitfalls you don't have those halos you don't have the noise you don't have the oversaturated colors you just have a good flat image
0: and that was one of the uh, valuable takeaways that uh, from watching the video that that sensibility that is that it's just like a raw file you know yes. you take the raw file you try to optimize it as best you can but you're not going to be doing all this Fancy stuff until you know you bring it into in into Photoshop or whatever application that you're that you're using and it made such such sense, but it, it's not it, it was not something that I'd seen commonly promoted with with people who you know promote HDR, and I thought wow, that's that's so obvious, but it, it's amazing how it's it's not been as common as you might think.
1: I don't know why that is. Maybe you know it could be. A lot of people like instant gratification, you know, they want to be able to do um, amazing things in as few clicks and and, and drags of a slider as possible, and especially in as few bounces from one product to another. Given the nature of my my role at On1, I know that for a fact. However, sometimes that's not, you don't have that luxury. You know, if you're trying to get a clean look, sometimes that takes time. Um, it, It requires multiple files and a few hours instead of a few minutes, but that, you know, to each their own.
0: There are some that say that in terms of photography, that people can hamper their ability to become better photographers because they're just creating material to work with in software. You know, that the, the images without this post-processing are just sort of lackluster in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, content, in terms of composition, in terms of lighting. So how do you yourself sort of challenge yourself to create an image that even before it has all that is a strong photograph so that you're building from a real solid place where mm-hmm. you're enhancing something that's already good rather than trying to make something that otherwise would be just blah
1: oh man what what a great question what a great that right there is is a a, a mega topic <laughs> unto itself. I try to post a, an image every day on my on my Google plus profile with an anecdote it's to me it's it's the image is is just a supporting uh character in in this you know daily show daily episode and so I like to write a lot and today's image that I posted was on aggressive uh framing and so your point is is very lucid and i agree with it or or you know maybe the point that you were trying going for through the question i agree with 100% and it's so critical to have a, a working foundation of not just your camera not just you know that that holy trinity of, of of aperture iso and shutter speed not just that that's the technical but in terms of how to compose a good shot with how to know, okay, I have this, my eyes, I have this scene in front of me. I'm standing here in this particular place, and this scene is in front of me. I have a camera, and I have X lenses. Or if I have one lens, I need to know how to most effectively use this camera and this focal length to get a good image. And and good image is suge- subjective. Good image is um, subjective not only to the photographer, but also to the intent of the image. If I'm out there for a, um, for a shooting for a newspaper or a periodical or a journal, that is means one thing. You know, I need to get you know, this particular type of framing. But if I'm out for myself, um, if I'm shooting for myself, that automatically I classify all of that 100% as fine art. It's kind of a loose term, but that's what I use. So if I'm shooting fine art, I want it to be compelling. And so now you start talking about composition. You start talking about minimalism. You start talking about negative space. You start talking about rule of thirds, breaking rule of thirds, you know, golden ratios, you know, filling the frame. And so all these things have to start coming into play. And that only comes with experience, you know, experience in terms of going out shooting, but also experience with one going through and looking at other people's work and seeing what you like, you know, I think we, we've been so pacified with the internet in terms of we we're, we're bombarded bombarded with with images uh, every day, and you you, you have this this um, knee jerk reaction to scroll, you know, oh nice image, okay plus one or or like, and mm-hmm. continue. you never really give yourself the the time to. Soak that image in and ask yourself, why do I like it? Because in doing that, you'll also gain this knowledge of when you're in the field and, and, and emulate it. You know, you can emulate what it is that you like about the image. And by emulating it, emulating is not copying. Emulating is taking something that you've seen already, recreating it, but with your own sensibilities. And so now you're starting to morph it into something that is is yours. Taking an image with the idea that you can bring it into software afterwards to make it better. If you're like, oh, you know what? There's really nothing here to the shot. It's a picture of, or it's an image of, uh, I don't know, a, a, something that doesn't uh, intrigue you. And you're like, oh, well, I could just apply some effects here. Um, then that's a problem. However, with that said, there are plenty of times, like even with the shot today, the shot I posted today of, the, of that, of that, um, um, Abandoned a police car. There was a, a tractor behind it, and for that particular framing, for that particular composition, there was no way I could physically move that tractor. And so I sat there and I said, I know that the way this camera and lens are positioned, that I can use Photoshop's content to to remove it. And I did that. The, the, the tractor is gone. So there's to that respect, knowing what tools you have in your your digital arsenal um, when you get home, that's important. But saying that, ah, you know what, this shot's kind of boring. I'm just going to jazz it up. That's tragic. Yeah. Well,
0: you just said something that just struck so many bells in my head, and it's just the the process that we view images now, where it's just a couple of seconds, and then you you like it or you plus one it or or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I realized that the way I learned how to become a better photographer, or if if not a better photographer, to learn how to discern when an image is really good, was looking at prints or books Mm -hmm. and lingering on those images. Because I have a collection of photo books that I've had since, since college, and I remember sitting on the floor of my room and just going over those images over and over and over again, and just really... Sort of absorbing them like a, a sponge. And I can't help but think that the way that I've learned to see has largely informed from all those countless hours just staring at those photographs. And I think that's something that's really lost. If, if the only way that you are sort of taking in photographs is by two second mouse clicks while your, while their images are flashing on your screen, It it makes it really difficult to really develop an eye from appreciating and looking at other people's work.
1: Absolutely. hundred percent. And you, you made a, a great point and something that I think everyone who's listening should really consider in that. So um, again, this is, it, it's, it's an anomaly for me, but so I, I, I have all these photo books and they're not, I'm not talking about the, the, you know, Photoshop for dummies or this or that. I'm talking about books by artists, it's like their portfolios or their projects and they would sit in my apartment and collect dust. And I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I spent the majority of my time in the office here at on one. Why don't I? I went to Ikea, bought a cheap bookshelf um, that sits in my, by my desk. I brought all of the, those books to the office here. So it, for me, given my work, like, Normally, you know, uh, you're in an office working environment, and you, you know, a coworker or a p- or a manager walks by you, and they see Facebook and Google Plus and all these windows open, and you're probably in trouble. But I get paid for that's my job. Mm-hmm. You know, those things up all the time. And but the other thing that I'm allowed to do that I'm not even allowed to do, I'm encouraged to do. I just sit there, I turn the screen off, I, I, I lean back in my chair, I grab like a Peter Lick book, and I start because I, I love his landscape stuff, and I just look through it. And the owner of the company will walk by, and my my manager will walk by, and people just walk by, and if anything, they're curious as to you know what do you see in this image, and we have conversations because this is a photography company, it's a creative company, and so I encourage people. You, you brought up a great point. Bring the book. Bring a few books to your office. Just keep them to the side, and when you're when maybe instead of catching up on your emails or or, or chatting on on your social networks during your lunch hour or whatever, just Break away, go through your, your, those books, read what the photographer wrote, um, and look at the images and really, really think about two things. Think about why you think the photographer took the shot the way they did. And then think about what it is that uh, has, does anything, uh, you know, evoke in you? Uh, and if not, m- you know, move on because not every image has to, just because it's a famous photographer and that image is in their book, doesn't mean it has to evoke something out of you. You have to kind of, that's a whole other thing, you know, is knowing, knowing what you like, knowing what stirs you. So
0: yeah. there's one thing I, I've sort of observed in watching the videos is how, for lack of a better word, uh, selective you are in terms of how you apply, you know, uh, like particularly the filters to select the area of the images rather than just sort of making these global changes where you're just like slathering down filters, yep. you know, on, on the shot. I think that you, you, you do it with the sort of succinctness that I, I, you, that I would expect people working in the darkroom would do it. You know, and I think that that sort of approach is really valuable to people who may pick up software like, like yours and it, it can be really intimidated by the abundance of options that, that they have. Can yes. you talk about both about being selective in terms of your use, but also trying to figure out, okay, which one do you use?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's what I, that's the, the, the crux of my, gospel when I do webinars is two things. One, you know, just because a slider goes to 100% doesn't mean that it has to go to 100%. And and two, don't just, just as much as I hate blanket statements, like I hate a strong word, but like I really do not like when people make blanket statements and I just made a blanket statement, (laughs) but, but I, the same kind of principle uh, tongue in cheek can be applied to stylization. Stylization to me is one, of, is one of the greatest gifts of digital photography because you can kind of go beyond the physical and create something from your imagination. And so to that end, yes, it's very easy to get overwhelmed not only with within one product, all of the offerings, but magnify that with, over all the products that are out there. For me, the first bit of advice is find a product that you're comfortable with. It doesn't have to be the on one products. It could be Nick. It could be Topaz. It could be anyone. I'm, I mean, that's, uh, I'm very fortunate that I'm, nev- no one has ever made me kind of force an opinion here. Right tool for the right job. But to that point, you know, when I look at an image of mine and I start editing it, I break it down into, it's, it really is a play. It's, it's a, every single image is its own little episode. And within an episode, you have characters, you have, you have roles. And so I break down the roles, and I look at the – you know, I'm looking right now at my, my, the, the corn patrol, the, the, the police car that I posted. And I see, okay, the way that I frame the shot with this 14-millimeter lens, I have the trunk of the car – or I mean the hood. Um, I've got the grill. I've got the, the, um, the headlamps. I've got the grass. I've got the sky. I've got the trees. And I've got the sirens above the car. And then I also have the stuffed animals. A lot of little supporting cast. Each one of those I processed in individually. And and so how do I know? That was a question that you'd asked. That just comes with time and trial and error. You know, yeah, like perfect effects. The product that we, that I use that we make has 300 plus effects. What does that mean? Does that mean that I've, I've went through and learned all 300 (laughs) hells? No, (laughs) not a chance, but I do have my favorites and, I basically, I'll look at a particular material or I'll look at a particular color or texture. And it's just through time, it's through experience that I know that Blue Dawn reacts really well with this particular texture and color. And Cyberpunk, which I used on the grill, works really well to kind of add a blue tint to chrome, which that's what the bumper of the car is made out of, is this chrome. And Green Enhancer, with a particular value, hue value, does a great job of boosting greens to a particular neonish level. And then, you know, so, and so on and so forth. And so it just is, it's routine. It's, it's routine in terms of knowing the effects. My processing, I don't think is routine. Each image is, is I never batch. We have batch capabilities. You'll never, ever, 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 ever catch me batching because um, I do not work that way. I like working where each image is given its own entity.
0: You work a lot with creating your own presets,
1: though, that
0: you, yeah. you apply occasionally to the images. Is that how you, you work that?
1: Presets, I never – I'll never – the preset in, in a, a way is a batch. I, I create presets so that I can provide them to our users. I'll never, ever go back and apply a preset. I have all these presets. Mm-hmm. Never apply them. I know which presets – I know um, which image was used uh, to create that preset because I, I keep notes of that. But when I post a preset with, uh, like, a Perfect Inspiration episode, I'll never go back and apply it because I, I want to start fresh every time. Really? Okay. Never, ever. Not once. You'll never catch me saying I apply this preset. I take core effects and I build them. Mm-hmm. And I don't use presets in Lightroom either. Ever. I, in fact, that left pain in Lightroom um, in the development mo- develop module, um, that's collapsed. Always, because I always just use the sliders.
0: And, you know, and it encourages you to really play and experiment, because otherwise you're kind of locked into what someone else thinks is
1: good. Yep, that's absolutely exactly why I do it. It forces you to kind of dabble instead of just this, like, one-click. Uh, and, and I'm not taking anything away. I was about to say one-click Instagram, because I love Instagram. It just doesn't have its place in my workflow with DSL or my, you know, images, phone images, different story.
0: Well, my last question is that I asked my guests to recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Oh, I mean, it it would go without question that it's my my wonderful uh, girl, Nicole Young. Uh, Other than the fact that I love her and she's my my girl. More importantly, she's an amazing photographer and not just a photographer with a camera, but just a working photographer with how passionate she is with photography. She's she that's why we get along so well cuz we're both one track minded in that respect. It's all about photography and the technology surrounding it, but how successful she is. You know, a navy veteran who started with, you know, her camera and kind of grew into this microstock industry. Branched out into food photography. Wrote. She's writing her fourth book, printed book, and then her uh, second ebook came out yesterday. So you know, she's just she's really aware, and, and I really respect her more than anything else. I respect her and her and her work.
0: Well, thank you for that, and thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us today. I really enjoyed uh, having the chance to finally sit down and talk with you in
1: depth. My, my pleasure, and thank you for for this was definitely fun. Uh, uh, The questions were were fantastic um, and really thought provocative. So um, thank you. The Candid
0: Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes music store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin MacLeod, and this is and X, and this is The Candid Frame.